Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. It's showtime. Welcome to the show, Fist Street Soccer on the Sports Byline Broadcast Network and Sirius XM211, Dan Patrick Sports. I'm Nick Eber along with Kartik Krishnaya. A lot to get to today, Kartik. We're going to cover the U.S. men's national team sending a scathing letter to Carlos Cadero, the head of U.S. soccer. Let's talk about the dumpster fire uh, that is U.S. soccer and some of the issues surrounding that. Kartik, I think we've got to give that a little bit of time today. Yeah, and, and this uh, letter from the U.S. men, if you have not seen it, which was sent two days ago to uh, uh, President Cordero, just flames them and talks about uh, so many of the issues we've touched on. And I thought maybe the last holdouts would be the U.S. men. And in fact, they now have joined the, the fight against U.S. soccer and the way the, the governance of the game in this country. All right. Well, we're going to talk that talk about that. Of course, the Premier League getting ready to start uh, this Sunday is the uh, Community Shield, the curtain raiser on the season. Uh, we'll be looking uh, throughout uh, next week. Uh, we'll be doing in-depth team-by-team previews of the Premier League. But let's take a look at the transfer market as, well, it's getting very interesting. A number of interesting situations happening at a number of clubs. Manchester United seems like they're so close yet so far away. Uh, £15 million specifically uh, for Harry Maguire. Uh, it looks like the Dybala deal is falling apart at the seams. Let's talk about the situation at Manchester United. Let's talk about Tottenham. Let's talk about Arsenal. But I want to look talk about Leicester City. I want to talk about Wolverhampton Wanderers. These are two teams to look at. Let's talk a little bit about Everton as well. You know, all the, to- all the talk is about the top six teams, but I think we have to look and ask, are there any teams out there that could possibly break into the top six and give us a bit of an upset? I think you know how we feel about that. All right, those are the topics on the table. We do hope you'll join us. Uh, find us on Twitter at Fifth Street Sports. Give us a call in the studio if you've got something to say, 800-878-7529, 800-878-PLAY. Big hello to our men and women in uniform around the world listening on the American Forces Network. Big hello to Kerry, who listens every day. And, of course, also, uh, if you're listening on one of our digital platforms, whether that's iHeart, TuneIn, or the award-winning SiriusXM app, we welcome you to the show. And we do hope you'll make us a regular part of your week. We're with you Monday through Friday. Uh, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 Eastern. Uh, We love to talk the beautiful game. That's what we do. We hope you find, well, if not us beautiful, the discussion beautiful uh, right here on Fist Street Soccer. We're going to step aside, take a break, and we'll be back with more after this. You're back with Nick and Kartik here on Fifth Street Soccer. Uh, Kartik, you know, it's been a fascinating summer. Uh, we've obviously had the Women's World Cup, all sorts of politics, all sorts of, uh, shall we say, shenanigans going on around it. Everybody, uh, everybody is posturing, everybody trying to get something out of it. But U.S. soccer are embroiled in a number of lawsuits as we speak. And it is amazing to me, and I hate to use that word, by the way, it was a word that the, the great Howard David, the legendary broadcaster, I used to work with him. He, he wants that, that is a word he absolutely hates people using. So I'll apologize, Howard, for using that word. 
but the incredible thing about this situation with U.S. soccer is this is supposed to be an organization that is in the background of the sport here in the United States that is supposed to manage the men's team, the, the women's team, youth soccer, the growth of the game, as well as sort of um, be the officiating organization over our professional leagues. And it just seems to me that U.S. soccer has time and time again found it not as the quiet behind-the-scenes player, but as the object, as the subject of all sorts of issues and controversies. Kartik, not too many first-world FAs can claim that uh, prize, can they? No, in fact, uh, in the Western world, we don't have another uh, football association that's been embroiled in so much litigation that seemingly has gotten away with the sort of things that would get other football associations in other parts of the world or maybe parts of the uh, or even in Western Europe, if they if they generated less revenue for the world game uh, suspended. I, I mean, you I, I think the case could be made. And this would have been terrible if it had affected the U.S. women in their World Cup run. The case could be made that the U.S. could, could, could and should be suspended from international competition. That might sound extreme. I'm not necessarily advocating that, but I'm saying a case of that sort could be made um, at this point uh, because of all the litigation that the U.S. Uh, Soccer Federation is facing on multiple fronts. Okay, It's not just women's equal pay. It's also antitrust uh, violations, alleged antitrust violations in favoring one professional league over another, a professional league which they happen to be in a business relationship with, MLS, via Soccer United Marketing, who won a no-bid contract to handle media and marketing uh, for uh, the U.S. Soccer Federation. It is also a lawsuit involving their former charitable arm. That's another issue. Uh, well, actually, they, we, had, also we had these... that bloke on the radio with us, remember? The guy from the U.S. Yeah, uh, yeah. US Soccer Foundation. Soccer Foundation, yeah. And then, and then you've got uh, the uh, the solidarity payment issue that we've talked about several times on this show uh, with Crossfire Premier. You have, um, you, you, you have a challenge to their... Uh, uh, structure of leagues and not having promotion and relegation in the close league system with the Kingston Stockade and Miami FC. We talked about it last night with Chris Kessel, right? He circulated a letter which 300 clubs signed. It was a letter when uh, Chris had first contacted me about it. I said, okay, it'll be great if you can get 50 clubs to sign it. That'd be fantastic. What a statement that would be. And then if you got 300 clubs signing it, people are not happy with U.S. soccer. And the latest, Nick, um, is this letter from the U.S. Uh, national teams, uh, the U.S. Men's National Team Players Association, um, which was a, a stunner. Uh, it was, a, a, and, and maybe we'll get into the letter in a minute. Well, the thing that is interesting to me is, look, I, I think for decades, the talking points of uh, the ownership of Major League Soccer and the vested status quo interests of soccer in the United States have said Remember how bad it was after NASL, which we're just happy to be here. You should just be happy that you have yes. what we give you. Unfortunately, globalization, the rise of digital media, the availability of all sorts of different soccer leagues from around the world have exposed this young millennial American population who is now very much into soccer. It's one of their top sports to the way the sport is run in other parts of the world. And those other parts of the world that present a much more exciting, a much more dynamic, and indeed much better leagues, I don't think there's any denying that. So U.S. soccer and Major League Soccer can no longer hide in the shadows. 
Now they can have to come out of the shadows and account for their actions. And yes, saying this is the way we've done it, be happy that we have soccer, is all wonderful and true to a degree. But the fact is, the elephant in the room, the key issue for all of these problems, Kartik, is Soccer United marketing. Maybe that in and of itself won't fix the promotion relegation issue, but it's the lack of transparency between Major League Soccer, U.S. Soccer Federation, and Soccer United marketing that is the root cause of 90% of the issues going on, whether it's between the men's national team, the women's national team, the equal pay discussion, uh, the uh, broadcast rights, uh, all of these sorts of things, uh, the the lawsuits going on right now with um, uh, isn't Silver suing if I'm not mistaken, Kartik? Yeah, that's at Cass. That's at Cass. That's what well, uh, Chris Kessel was talking about yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well that's at Cass. But I mean that's the, the same thing. Suit. But all of this is as a result of this incestuous, not arm's length transaction that has gone on between Major League Soccer and Soccer United Marketing Kartik. And I think at some point, some governing organization of the game has to step in and separate those two. Yeah. And and again, they got a no-bid contract. And I know, um, and no one really wants to talk about this, when Rocco Camiso sued, or, or the NHL sued with their antitrust lawsuit, at that point, they hadn't even papered the deal. And so they, they went and papered the deal. They were operating under an MOU of between some and U.S. soccer, which essentially gave some complete control of things. And I think what you are seeing now is, um, I've said it before, and people haven't necessarily listened because they've said, oh, you're beating up on the men when you say the women deserve all this money that some is taking from them. I said, no, I'm saying the men deserve more money too. It's, it's MLS is taking money from both the U.S. men and the U.S. women. They're profiting off of the success or the popularity, it's not really success with the U.S. men, but you know what I mean, the popularity of both the men's and women's national teams. And, and that money is essentially going to subsidize a first division professional league, the same professional league that is taking $200 million in expansion fees from every new club. Yet we have semi-professional leagues, right? I'm being in New York uh, for the, this weekend for the final of the uh, NPSL, a semi-professional league that gets no benefit from U.S. soccer. Uh, we've got NASL is suing because they were um, they, they've alleged antitrust violations. They got nothing from U.S. soccer. The, the smaller clubs, the grassroots clubs, the clubs that would actually need the support from the governing body that is meant that is a nonprofit meant to grow the sport and facilitate the growth of the sport is in fact favoring the fat cats and the billionaires over um, the, the small local club in your community that plays soccer at, at the park. That, so, that is pathetic. Yeah, it, it really is. So along these lines, um, U.S. soccer have come out and said, hey, you know, we've looked at our accounting and actually, you know, we play the women more than the men. And the men have come up and said, uh, quote, we do not believe the different play pay structures justifies discrediting the work the women do with the real value of their profound impact to the American sports landscape. The men's national team statement said the soccer federation was pocketing the extra revenue the team was generating as it gained po uh, popularity rather than returning it uh, to the women. And they went on to uh, uh, say that the uh, the only solution Mr. Cordero proposes is for fans to buy more tickets and watch more games on television, the team said. Quote, he conceals the fact 
that the money will not go to the women's national team players when sponsors pay the federation to support the women's national team. Fans buy ticket to the women's game at ever-increasing ticket prices, and television companies pay more f- uh, pay more when fans watch women's national team games. This isn't either fair nor equitable. And then they pointed out the men's team is also working without a collective bargaining agreement right now. Kartik, this whole thing is a dumpster fire. It's embarrassing, and, and when we get back to the uh, after the break, we'll talk more about this. It is a it, it, this this was a dumpster fire, and now we had more kerosene poured on it by the U.S. men. Yeah, it really it really is uh, shocking, and you know I wonder when we look back at the elections for the head of U.S. soccer if there's uh, regret. Look, I flamed Hope Solo, but you know she would have got stuff done. I mean, I would not have been yeah. against her or Eric Winalda or any of the people that really understand the game from the other side rather than these sort of corporate interests who just seem to put on their suit and ruin it for everyone. All right, uh, Fistic Soccer. (laughs) Yeah, Nick and Kartik will be right back after this. We've got Nick and Kartik here on Fifth Street Soccer, Sports Byline Broadcast Network, Sirius XM 211, Dan Patrick Sports. Uh, we were talking before the break about the dumpster fire at U.S. Soccer, about Carlos Codero. Uh, you know, Kartik, he was the sort of mainstream candidate. Uh, the lady they had, I forget her name, who was the sum... Kathy Carter. Kathy Carter, the sum executive. She would have been a complete disaster. So I think he was sort of not quite as extreme as that, but he wasn't Winaldo or Hope Solo. But by the same token, he's just not convincing Kartik. He's not convincing anybody. And U.S. soccer doubling down on this position when they're sitting with $150 million in an investment account uh, and they're a nonprofit and their goal is to grow the game here in the United States – it seems to me he doesn't have a position. If he were a CEO of a for-profit corporation, well, one could understand it, but he ain't. Right, and and he, you know he's a Goldman Sachs executive, right? So he didn't really have the grounding in soccer, uh, but this is the kind of moneyed interest that uh, U.S. soccer and people like uh, Alan Rothenberg and, and Chuck Blazer, who brought him into the sport, were comfortable with. But let me uh, uh, mention this. During the campaign, and I, I think you, you, you might remember this, Nick, he talked about the conflicts of interest between some, uh, Cordero did, some and U.S. soccer, and that he was going to get to the bottom of that. And Don Garber came after him, if you remember, very publicly. So at that point, we're thinking, okay, uh, some of us on the reform side thought when all the Hope Solo, uh, Kyle Martino, the, you know, those are your best bets, one of the, one of the former players. Uh, but then I, I thought, yeah, maybe Cordero isn't that bad. He's calling out this conflict of interest, but he's gotten in and done nothing about it. Um, and in fact, doubled down. Now, I think maybe, and this is what I hear, and, and, and I'd love to get someone on the show to talk about this, that there, maybe he is not actually in control of what goes on at the Federation. It's being run by staff, which is the same staff Sunil Gulati had, and um, Cordero is more of a figurehead than anything. So even though Cordero, as a board member, saw these conflicts of interest and called them out, now he's powerless to do anything about it. Now, that, if that's the case, that's even worse than him being complicit. 
because that means you have a powerful staff that has no connection with what's going on outside the building, soccer house in Chicago, and has no interest in making stakeholders in the game in this country uh, feel like U.S. Soccer, soccer represents them. They have no interest in putting everybody together. They just want to make money. Too much hair. Too much hair, Kartik. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's why I, did, that's why I wouldn't have uh, approved of Kyle Martino. Uh, Hope Solo, well, she's a little bit crazy. Uh, but Eric Winalda, my friend, Eric. I mean, he's always outspoken, always speaks his mind, and really understands the ins and outs of the game. That was a real loss, I thought. Yeah, and and I do think also when you th- when when you talk about specifically um, the way Winalda was characterizing things, the the powers that be at MLS and some pushed back because they were very very concerned about his potentially getting in there. They they then got very hostile to Martino when Martino called out some directly. Now Martino made an allegation that he was never able to verify that um, the that the U.S. Um, uh, national team was selecting qualifying sites based on where some could sell, sell the most tickets. He was never able to verify that. And I, uh, um, at the time I thought, you know, Martino's guy, he's getting into conspiracies now, but now two years later, I'm thinking he, he probably was right about that. Right. Oh, yeah, because sure. Martino's allegation was that the U S played Costa Rica in, in a location in New Jersey, Harrison, New Jersey, where they could sell the most tickets to Costa Rican fans um, in order to ensure a sellout for that match. Well, we know what happened in that match, right? And subsequently, yeah. the U.S. didn't qualify f- for the World Cup for the first time in 30-some-odd years. So um, that was his claim, that he said he couldn't say who the source was, but he had a really good source who told him the selection of the game was made by some. It wasn't the Federation actually selecting the, the, the host. It was Soccer United Marketing and MLS. Um, that was a loaded allegation that I, I, I dismissed at the time. And now I'm thinking, well, you know, everything they do is about money anyway. So probably Martino was right. Yeah, unfortunately, um, I think he is right. And, uh, you know, everything that U.S. soccer does is about money. And I appreciate that in order to execute their charter, they need money to do that. But we're no longer talking about a fifth-rate sport that no one cares about, that well, that lives in a vacuum, that uh, you know, that 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 is uh, basically you know comes after cornholing on ESPN in terms of popularity. I mean, you know, we we're talking about what is now one of absolutely the mainstream sports uh, in this country, uh, with a rabid supporters base in this country that is desperate for our version of the game here to be considered uh, on par with the best in the world, which, if I might go out on a limb and say, is a wonderful thing for the sporters base here in America to want, to look at all of these things that they see on TV and say, hmm, I want that. I want it to be like that. Not, you know, I want, like we used to hear when we did this show 20 years ago, you know, hey, what will it take for a U.S. team to play in the English Premier League? I mean, we don't get stupid questions like that anymore. Now it's, what is it, what's it going to take to make MLS more competitive, better? What's it going to take to elevate the status of the game? And I'll tell you what it's not, Kartik, to just segue here for a minute. It's not the MLS small-star game. <laughs> right. And uh, at Letty... Uh, I, there are a bunch of MLS fans who said that Letty was disrespectful because they decided to, to trot out a C team 
because uh, they've had a bunch of friendlies. You know, they're 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 going back, getting ready to, to start their La Liga season, their Champions League campaign. And by the way, this is a La Liga year. We've talked about them on the show. They they might push. They might win the title this year. Yeah, I haven't decided may. whether I'm picking them or Barcelona, but I think they've got a shot. So they they they, they start with their their B C teams and some young players. Um, they still outplay the MLS All Stars. Apparently, we I didn't see the match, but then second half they brought uh, on the, the big guns and they they they, they wiped them out. Uh, it's very embarrassing for MLS to continue to be playing sides like Atletico Madrid, uh, etc. In in these matches because they they're not competitive with them, right? There yeah. were ten years ago. This is the funny thing. We keep being sold a narrative that MLS is getting better and better. I was at an all-star game where the MLS all-stars beat Chelsea and looked pretty good in the process. I remember, I remember they beat, um, uh, they beat somebody else uh, big in that, in that period, 2007, 2008. Then they played Manchester United and got beat uh, uh, badly. And then since then it's been, this has been the regular thing. They played, uh, um, they, they, I remember they played AS Roma one year and, and just got smoked, got embarrassed. Uh, this Atletico game is the latest. I think Juventus beat them badly when they played them. So um, this is now becoming more of an embarrassing showcase for MLS. Now, of course, you need to bring in a team like Atletico Madrid to sell tickets. But, uh, you, you know, if I were them, I would just go back to the East, East versus West format next season. Yeah, well, uh, because not? they can't afford another embarrassment like this. Well, why not? You know, why do we even need an MLS All-Star game? I mean, this is this is the point. Why do you Well, that's even, true, right. Yeah, I mean, right. What's the point? I mean, what's the point of an All-Star game? It's not like, okay, it's not like the NFL, where the NFL is the top football league in the world. Okay, there's only really one other one, but, you know, it is the top league in the world. Or Major League Baseball, which is the best baseball league in the world. Or the NBA, which undoubtedly has the greatest athletes in the world playing in it. And you want to see those all-stars playing together. It's kind of like a smorgasbord for, you know, sports junkies. But Major League Soccer does not have the best players in the world playing in it. It has some good aging players from abroad, some some decent young prospects, and a whole bunch of journeymen that just will not make the pulse race. And you know why you want to, uh, why you would want to uh, showcase that? Quite honestly, is is beyond me. Yeah, yeah, right. Why why would you want to expose yourself to the world as a fraud? Because I I remember um, it, it, when they beat Chelsea, they made a big deal about it, and I was at the match, and and uh, I remember telling. Uh, people, look, this is Chelsea in preseason. Uh, this is all the best players in MLS. But it still, you know, it still showed they could be competitive. They played well. Uh, but then the next year they played AS Roma and they got killed, uh, I remember. And then they played uh, uh, Juventus or somebody. I, it's just been a succession. I think they played Real Madrid one year and got embarrassed, uh, yeah. as you would expect. And so at this point... Look, when I saw we, – we were on the air yesterday when I looked at the Atleti lineup, and I said, oh, well, I guess Atletico is just, you know, going to – this is almost like uh, a mercy rule. They're, gonna, they're not going to play their regulars so that this game is competitive. But then Simeone put his regulars on in the second half, and they scored three goals. And from what I was told, I talked to some people who were at the game. Obviously, it was, it was uh, in Florida. Uh, it could have been a lot worse. And in fact, it was so bad that the Orlando fans were booing a lot of the uh, uh, ML other MLS players that played for other teams other than Orlando City. They just they went ahead and turned on the MLS all-star team. So that, that's another thing. So if you're trying to create rivalries within your league, 
and then you take your so-called showcase game with the league's all-stars to a venue like Orlando that has a very passionate supporters fan base, you don't expect Orlando fans, if you've sold them these manufactured rivalries that you put together with Atlanta and New York City FC and other teams for Orlando, you don't expect them to, to put that aside for a night and start cheering Atlanta players because they didn't. And uh, I was talking to a friend this morning who was at the game and she was telling me, hey, you know, it was like they were rooting for Atletico at the end, a lot of the Orlando City fans. Because, I mean, oh, look, uh, they, 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 they liked what they saw from Jao Mario and they didn't want to root for uh, uh, whatever player it was from, I think, Joseph Martinez from the Atlanta uh, United. So, <laughs> you know, hey, how, they, they just expose themselves to so much when they have these games. How much were the tickets, do you know? Yeah, they were quite expensive, I was told. Um, they were not national team prices. They were not the $150, but they were like 80 bucks and, and up. Wow, that's very expensive. All right, uh, you're listening to uh, Fist Free Soccer, Nick and Kartik. Gee, sorry to be so negative, but, you know, we got to call it as we see it. Uh, we're not beholden to anybody. Uh, we're in nobody's back pocket, which may be a bad thing. <laughs> I don't know. All right, well, we're going to step aside, take a break. When we come back, let's talk transfers. Let's talk Premier League, the greatest show on earth, getting ready to kick off. You know, I could talk about MLS, some um, U.S. soccer, the unholy trinity, shall we say, uh, for hours. And by the way, welcome. This is Fistry Soccer, the show that really likes to ruffle feathers and really, really pee off the status quo. Uh, you know, we, we don't make friends in high places. Let me just put it to you that way. But I think that as listeners of this show, that's what you expect. No. Let me back up. That's what you demand of us. Because if you just want to listen to a bunch of people read press releases and sing the party line, well, there's a whole channel devoted just to that. And uh, that is not us. We are something else. All right, Kartik, should we talk uh, Europe for a minute? Yeah, we've only got a few minutes left, so might as well. Yeah. So look... Um, Manchester United are so close yet so far away. If they had added Maguire, uh, Dybala, and the uh, one Bissaka and the other signings, I would say Man United would really be looking pretty decently coming into the new season for that top four spot. But keep in mind, Lukaku's going to go. I'm hearing that... The Dybala swap isn't going to happen. And, and I did say that, right, Kartik? I said that when you have two players with different agents, the swap deal is very, very hard to get done. I'm hearing yeah, you that's... did say that a few nights ago, and you, you, you're yeah. right. Yeah, and, and I'm hearing the Maguire, they're £15 million off the valuation. So that between off an $80 million valuation, they've offered 65 That's a really big percentage gap. And I think uh, it's interesting because... Clearly, United don't want to sort of blow their Lukaku money if they get it on Maguire. They want somebody else up top who's going to knock goals in on a fairly consistent basis. So it is possible that it could be none of the above. And if that's the case and they lose Lukaku and all they do is add one Bissaka, I'm not sure that United have really done much to help. And remember, the end of last season, I mean, they, uh, I mean, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer had that incredible 12-game run 
And then I think they won three games the rest of the season. So, I mean, they ended the season, by the way, much like Tottenham Hotspur, in a real tailspin. Yeah, and um, they also, uh, uh, quite frankly, uh, kept faith with Solskjaer under the impression that they were going to really retool the squad this summer, right? There were going to be all sorts of changes. Um, Players out, players in. They still have... Uh, as of right now, Lukaku, now I think he's going to get sold. He's a commodity, right? Right, right? But Pogba, it doesn't seem like they're going to be able to get rid of. Alexis Sanchez is still on their books. Um, they made the interesting decision. I mean, I love Juan Mata, but I think he's past it. Uh, he's the kind of guy who should now probably be playing, you know, be leading a leading figure for a mid-table team. Um, they re-signed him, which was, I think, an admission that they couldn't really get. Maybe they think he's good in the dressing room, right? But... Um, it hasn't been the kind of transfer window I expected from them. It hasn't been from Spurs. We bashed Arsenal for weeks on this show yeah. coming out of the Women's World Cup when we began to talk, pay attention to transfers. All of a sudden, I'm looking at Arsenal thinking, you know what? They might finish in the top. They might finish third this season. Oh, that's very it's possible. possible. Yeah, Pepe, Saliba, Martinelli, Ceballos. I mean, these are some terrific signings. I mean, these are players that will hit – uh, that will hit the pitch immediately. Well, I don't know about Martinelli. He's only 18. He, he may not play uh, first-team football right away. Uh, but Pepe, Saliba, and Ceballos, I mean, those are game-changing players. And, you know, I could say the same thing that I said about Man United, Kartik, about Spurs, uh, especially in light of what Pochettino said that we discussed yesterday where he was saying, you know, they should change my name to, uh, from, uh, to, to just to coach from manager because I have no say don't ask me about transfers I don't know anything I don't have any say but you know Spurs also the the question you have to ask yourself about Tottenham is was the end of the last season they also had a horrible dip in form if you remember I mean they were really firmly up there was that because of their sort of incredible Champions League run or was uh, was that the reason, or was it that they had this just god awful run of form that could well continue into this season? Um, okay, so we made the assumption it was because of Champions League, and they were focused on Champions League. But look, they lost a, a number of matches. They, there was a point where they couldn't get a point away from home, right? Or they couldn't win a match away. From, well, they didn't right. draw a match till late in the season, so they couldn't win a match away from home, and they were dropping matches to teams that were mid-table uh and they weren't looking particularly uh good in the process but they had an injured harry kane uh they had sun for part of that time at the asian cup remember uh they had um then another significant player injured right in that period uh i'm blanking out who it was but they they had some some significant injuries and they're already a team that wasn't very deep a team that hadn't bought a player in two successive windows um yeah, well, I mean, the, 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 so I yeah. Think, uh, yeah, I mean, look, if we're looking at the teams that really can uh, actually stand, I mean, I think you and I will both agree and we'll backtrack and we'll put up our hand and say, Mayor Culper, uh, congratulations to Stan Kroenke and Arsenal because they've managed to complete some incredible signings. And the fact they got the financing they wanted for Pepe was really incredible because that's a, that's financed over three or four years. So it's not a bank breaking transfer for them, you know. Congratulations, that's good business. But, you know, John Barr was on this show the last couple of weeks, and he's been talking up Leicester City. Now, Kartik, I want you to keep in mind that Leicester City have one of the youngest squads in the Premier League, okay? Brendan Rodgers' first 11 
since he took over are 26 or younger. You're talking about guys like Tielemans, who they brought in for, what was it, 40 million? Uh, Perez, who they got for 30 million. These are both really young players. So what I want to do, Kartik, is I'm going to let's look at the Leicester City starting 11. They got Schmeichel, who's like 32. Then they got Chilwell, Maguire, and Didi. Pereira and Evans only one of those players is over 26 and that's Evans at 31 in the midfield they've got uh 21 two two 22 year olds a 21 year old and a 23 year old and then of course up top they have Jamie Vardy who's you know probably the oldest player on the team I think he's 33 or something along those lines so I mean Leicester City if they keep building the way they're building Kartik especially on what was some really good form at times last season and um, with Brendan Rodgers, who, yeah, we like to joke about him as being a serial wife swapper, uh, but uh, he probably has one of the most exciting young squads in the league. Not one of the most exciting young squads, the most exciting ones, young squads. We're talking about Harvey Barnes, Madison, uh, Chowdhury, who's not necessarily going to be a starter, but is a, a very good player, a homegrown player. Uh, Chilwell, uh, you talk about those four players in particular, and then you add Tailmans, who, uh, oh, by the way, Ndidi also. Let me not forget, Ndidi now, it feels like he's been there for a few years, but he's still only 22 or 23. Um, they got a really good team. And Tailmans uh, was a good player at Monaco. I was surprised Monaco let him go. Uh, Monaco has made so much money off transfers, right, the yeah. last few years anyway. They've sold everybody. But um, uh, I thought Tailmans uh, would go, when he went on loan to Leicester, that maybe – uh, they and I, and I tweeted at the end of last season if they if they make that a permanent transfer they're going to finish in the top four next year. I'm hedging a little more than I did because now the season's about to start. But I did say at the end of last season Leicester would finish in the top four, so I guess maybe I should stick with it. So I had Leicester fourth then. Well, I mean, really, the the question is if if we think uh, we haven't really talked about Liverpool who haven't added anybody to the squad. I mean, uh, admittedly they've added Vandenberg, the what 18 year old massive Dutch centre back and. And Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain's pretty much like a new player, provided he stays injury-free. Uh, but then the question is, they had a pretty deep squad last year. Did they really need to add that much to it? Mm, probably not. So if you think the first two spots are kind of looking... Well, certainly Man City, I don't see anyone's going to knock them off their perch, quite frankly. But you never know. The football's got to be played, always. But you're looking at Spurs and Arsenal. And then you've got to look at Leicester... And we've got to see what Fat Frank does at, at Chelsea. You, you just never know. I mean, there's a lot of young players. And when you get a lot of young players have been recalled from loan deals, they've always got something to prove, Kartik. That's a real wild card for me. Yeah, you've got Tammy Abraham and Mason Mount in particular. There was guys to watch uh, that had been that were on loan. You know, and Batshuayi still has a lot to prove, and he's done well. Uh, he was terrible when he went to Spain. Uh, maybe that was just the wrong league for him. But he did well uh, on his loan spell in Germany. Did very well in his loan spell at Crystal Palace, which is obviously the same division. Uh, but of course, he was playing with Wilfred Zaha, who was just unplayable at the time there but um and, and let me to interrupt you uh, wilfred zaho who is still by last time i looked at crystal palace yeah yeah right i mean this is uh kind of stunning but palace uh Palace, the, as long as they keep him, they'll stay up. And we learned that, like I said, two years ago, I thought he was the player of the year in the league. Uh, even though Manchester City had 100 points, I said Zaha was the most important player in the Premier League because uh, without him, Palace ended up having 40, 40 or 42 points, stayed up. Without him, they would have had 25 points and gone down and maybe right. gone down in, in 20th. Um, yeah, I think Liverpool... Uh, 
having Ox back, if he stays fit, and it is a big if, I think that's like a new signing. Um, and obviously Manchester City added Rodri, so the, the top two have arguably both gotten better. Uh, which So I don't think that's in question. It's just who's going to finish first and who's going to finish second. But then third is up for grabs. It could be Arsenal at this point. I think Chelsea is very much in the conversation with uh, Lampard bringing back some of these players on loan. And talking to a, a Chelsea insider a couple of weeks ago, they told me that uh, Lampard, it wasn't just his Chelsea legacy that got him the job, but that his style is is closer to Sarri's style hmm. than the other managers that they could have hired. So essentially, because they had made that transition and made the commitment to go from Conte's very defensive um, three at the back style to um, which depended a lot on wing backs and crosses and stuff like that to this much more free flowing midfield type type uh, battle, play on with the ball on the ground. Because they had made that commitment, they just had to keep going with it, right? Because they had already, uh, and they don't have they don't have the next two windows to buy players. So um, Lampard maybe got the job a year or two before he would have gotten it otherwise. Um, then you're looking at United. We've talked about them. I don't think they're in the top four right now. And then um, Spurs. Gosh, you know I have to bump someone to put Leicester in there. And by the way, um, when we say uh, Leicester, we also need to throw in Everton. Everton yeah. is going to uh, be better this season. But um, yeah, you know, it could be it could be that your Spurs fall out of the top four finally. Wow. Uh, which that's a really big question, Nick. What you put put there, and I think we're going to ponder this for for the next few weeks. Was that bl- that run of form at the end of last season in the league? Was it really related to the fact that they were uh, winning in Champions League, or was it in fact? Uh, a transition that's going to spill into this season. Yeah, we don't know I mean, yet, but we, it yeah, might be. Yeah, it might be know. a problem. Yeah, we we know about as much as we also know taking a championship manager who manages Derby County, looking at a style that he plays there in the championship, and say, "Oh, he can play that with what we consider oh, a top right, four true, team in the true, Premier League true. with with Frank Lampard." I mean, that is that really is a leap. But uh, but by the same token, I will say this: I don't think Manchester United even though they had that horrible run of form after the first 12 games, I don't think they were as good as they were at the beginning uh, under Solskjaer or as bad as they were at the end. Uh, I think that if they make a couple of signings that they need, they could really, really compete. We just got a minute left. Yeah, I, I think they could. And um, I, it's, look, spots three to eight right now are really fluid. I know we talk about the top six, but I think uh, everybody from, from uh, third – all the way to eighth or ninth could be in doubt. Wolves, you could throw in that conversation. Sure. Look, West Ham got Holler uh, from Frankfurt, who I think yeah. is a fantastic player, and Pellegrini is a damn good manager. So they could be in the conversation too. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a fun season. The only reason we haven't talked about them, folks, is just not enough time because we're just about yeah. out. We do have to go to break for street soccer. We'll be right back to wrap it up here on the Sports Byline Broadcast Network and Sirius XM 211. Nikki Bakartik Krishna with you. Find us on Twitter at Fifth Street Sports. And most importantly, find us right here Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern. We'll be right back. All right, just a couple minutes left. Nick Eber and Kartik Krishna with you. Let's wrap it up, Kartik. We're talking about who's your best guest to break into the top six Give me your top six right now. And again, we do this a lot, but this is a moving target with the transfer window as we get closer to the close of the window. How do you see it right now? Liverpool, City, Arsenal, Leicester, 
Spurs, Chelsea. Yes, I put Leicester in there. Someone is going to talk me out of that. Okay, I go back. But uh, for now, I've got them in there. So you think Liverpool are going to win the league this year? Yeah, I think uh, losing company is a big blow for City, and they haven't exactly replaced them. And then you take a look at Silva being a year older. Um, I think this is kind of a rebuilding year for City. That having been said, there's still the other contender for the title. It's going to be one of those two. We know that. Do you think that um, there's a, there will be an enhanced focus again, even more so this year, with City in the Champions League? And maybe the yes. feeling is, you know, eh, if we don't three-peat, it's okay. Yes. That's the other thing I was going to mention. Uh, we're almost out of time. But I think City, City wants Europe. Liverpool wants the Premier League. Uh, they would swap trophies if they could, <laughs> right, in a way. In um, any day. So I yeah. think that's what's going to happen this year. I think City are going to push in Champions League and, and, and get at least to the semifinals, I think. Uh, maybe maybe get, uh, get all the way to the final. And, and uh, Liverpool, I think, will win the Premier League. And both, both clubs will be happy at the end. Yeah, I think Liverpool will have a very tough time in the Champions League this year. Not that they're not a great team and yeah. that Klopp isn't a great manager, but now they have a huge, whopping great target on their back. Uh, so uh, we will yeah. uh, wait and see. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up, folks. We're with you uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday. Uh, we talk the beautiful game. We hope you will join us and make us a regular part of your week. Nick Eber with you with Kartik Krishnaya. Find us on Twitter. Uh, we're at Fifth Street Sports. On Facebook, we're at Fifth Street Sports Talk. And, uh, you know, most importantly, we're right here. So let's continue the discussion off air, and we will be back with you tomorrow, 9 p.m. Eastern time. Have a great night. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.